We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right into the danger zone. With the Muslim population numbers in Western Palestine, modern Israel, stable for over 200 years, it's hard to see how they suddenly had a massive surge in numbers. Unless large numbers of Muslims came from other Muslim countries. And the Muslims living in the British Mandate, who had for hundreds of years gone anywhere else, because that country was a barren wasteland, that is, until the Jews started up their farms. God's promised rebirth of that country when the Jews returned in numbers. From what I've seen, I can only assume that vast numbers of Muslim natives to the land in what were now new countries that had not really existed before, carved out of the Ottoman Empire by the victorious European powers. Muslims from those countries, attracted by the thriving Jewish farms, just dropped into the British Mandate to say hello, and didn't go home again. Well, until the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, that I'll talk about in a much much later program, when a lot of them moved onto the borders of Israel and, for mostly bad reasons, have stayed there ever since. But now it's time to get serious and tell you what happened and where the Muslims in the British Mandate, especially the ones crowding into the areas of the new Jewish farms, came from. In part 19 of this series, I talked about the frustrated efforts of Colonel McCarrath to have identity cards introduced into the Palestine Mandate to prevent illegal Muslim immigration. The only immigrants who were supposed to be going into the British Mandate were Jews. The pro-Arab British authorities came up with all sorts of excuses not to introduce identity cards. Eventually, because of his persistence, it was necessary to promote Colonel McCarrath and move him to a posting in solid state, although I think they definitely knew that a lot had illegally entered the mandate and state. It didn't stop the British probably lying and saying that this problem was only small. The exact words mostly used were that Muslim recorded immigration to Palestine was minimal. Cat wanted to know. The British report canned 23 different languages were used by Muslims who came from 24 different countries. There were clearly Muslims flooding into the British Mandate from all over the Middle East and Muslim North Africa. Jewish immigration was, however, meticulously recorded. The British pursued a policy of restricting Jewish immigration so that the immigrant Jews wouldn't take the jobs of the native Muslims. The fact was that the more Jews who came into the country, the more jobs there were, and it was Muslims taking jobs that the Jewish immigrants had created. The caps imposed on Jewish immigration, the terms of the mandate made it clear that there should not have been any caps, 
were adjusted downwards using the exhaustive records that the British kept of all Jewish immigration, including illegal immigration. The British subtracted the numbers of illegal immigrants from the numbers of Jews that they had arbitrarily decided from time to time that they were going to allow to legally enter the country. As I've said before, the terms of the mandate required the British to facilitate, that's the word, facilitate Jewish immigration to the country. But the British were doing the exact opposite. In 1939, in the face of the perpetual claim that the Jewish immigration was somehow unexplained, forcing Muslims off their land, Winston Churchill replied, I'm so far from being persecuted, the Arabs have crowded into the country and multiplied till their population has increased more than even all world Jewry could lift up the Jewish population. Churchill wasn't the only senior person in government commenting on and acknowledging the sly immigration of large numbers of Muslims into Western Palestine, the minor part of the British mandate that they had reduced the Jewish homeland to. The British governor of the Sinai from 1922 to 1936 wryly observed that this illegal immigration was not only going on from the Sinai, but also from Transjordan and Syria, and it is very difficult to make a case out for the misery of the Arabs if at the same time their compatriots from adjoining states could not keep from going in to share that misery. Here's just one example recorded in the minutes of the Permanent Mandates Commission of the League of Nations, La Syrie, published on 12 August 1934, of an interview with Tuik Bey El Hurani, the governor of the Horan, a region of southwest Syria, in which he stated, In the last few months, from 30,000 to 36,000 Horanese Syrians had entered Palestine and settled there. There's no record of this immigration in British records, which gives a revealing insight into how biased the British were in favour of the Muslims coming into the mandate from other Muslim countries. There was also a free pouring into Western Palestine by Muslims from or using Transjordan as an easy unchecked entry into that country. So just looking at the 30 to 36,000 Horanis that entered Western Palestine from the spring to the summer of 1934 from just one area in only one of the many depressed neighbouring Muslim countries from which impoverished Muslims were known to be emigrating to Western Palestine, mostly into the Jewish settled areas, an Arab official's report clearly indicated that more Arabs illegally entered and remained in Palestine than the total number of Jews for twice that length of time in 1934, who had been approved to immigrate into their designated Jewish national homeland. The official British record of immigration to Western Palestine for the entire year of 1934 reported that the recorded immigration of just 1,784 non-Jews with only about 3,000 as travellers remaining illegally. And those figures supposedly included Arab immigrants from all points into 
all of Palestine, but clearly did not include the thirty to 36,000 Huranis who had indisputably entered Western Palestine. The Jewish immigration was meticulously recorded by the British, though. Their age groups, occupations, amount of capital, etc., etc., etc. There was no specific accounting of non-Jews in the same period. The British did slip up, though, from time to time, although virtually no Muslims were reported by them as illegally entering the country, they deported more the country. Probably the number of illegal Muslims entering the country was actually much, much higher. In autumn of 1934, the Palestine High Commissioner stated that during that year, we do not consider that the numbers of those illegal immigrants exceed 100 per month. Clearly untrue with just the known numbers of Haranis who were recorded from Syria as entering Western Palestine, all in a short space of time, and not one of them returning. According to the Report of the Year 1937, Colonial Number 146, at page 68, more Muslims were deported in 1935, 2,455 deported, of which 2,152s were non-Jews. The reality, which was known to the British administrators, that Muslims from surrounding countries were pouring into Western Palestine, drawn like bees to honey, by the prosperity offered by working on Jewish farms, was falsely represented by the British as being the other way around. As a result of totally misrepresenting what was happening with immigration, the British imposed tighter controls on Jewish immigration, limiting the numbers who would be admitted to Western Palestine on the basis that with so many Jews coming in, the native indigenous population of Muslims were unable to find jobs. The fact was that the jobs that these Muslims were finding, they were finding because the Jews were successfully carrying on business and creating those jobs, which Jews should have been filling. But the Jews, who for the most part preferred employing their fellow immigrant Jews in their businesses, were being forced instead to employ illegal Muslim immigrants because the British were strangling legal Jewish immigration into Western Palestine. The reason always advanced for this was that it was exceeding what the British authorities called the absorptive capacity of the mandate to give full employment to indigenous Muslims who mostly weren't indigenous. As the famous Scottish author Sir Walter Scott once wrote, Oh, what a terrible web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Telling the truth is easy. You just say what you know. Lying means that you really have to be careful to make sure that your lies are consistent or you'll be caught out. And so it was that the British were often caught out with their lies the British counted the newly arrived Muslim illegal immigrants as indigenous, deeply rooted Palestinians and identified the Jews as flooding the country beyond its absorptive capacity, crowding out the indigenous Muslims. But the Hope Simpson report of 1930 announced its most important conclusion as being that Muslims were being displaced by immigrant Jews. Even though later, within its very own pages, the report revealed that there was an uncontrolled influx of illegal Muslim immigrants. Page 138 of the Hope Simpson report read, 
Egyptian labour is being employed in certain individual cases, and its ingress has been the subject of adverse comment in the press. It may be a difficult matter to ensure against this illicit immigration, but steps to this end must be taken if the suggested policy is adopted, as also to prevent unemployment lists being swollen by immigrants from Transjordania. The report on the same page made it clear that the illegal Muslim immigration problem was on a very large scale. The chief immigration officer has brought to notice that illicit immigration through Syria and across the northern frontier of Palestine is material. At page 160 of the Hope Simpson report, it spoke of the case of the pseudo-traveller who comes in with permission for a limited time and continues in Palestine after the term of his permission has expired, as being the present practice of the Muslims as a method that was an injustice to the Jews, who were the ones that the British were supposed to be helping to enter the country. The British White Paper of 1939 was in the works that legislation passed by the British at the instigation of the Muslims would so harshly restrict Jewish immigration to Palestine that hundreds of thousands of Jews would be prevented from entering what was to have been their sanctuary at the very time that the Nazis were beginning the death camps, condemning many Jews in the Holocaust. The White Paper would be justified by the premise that the Jews were usurping the indigenous Arabs' places in Palestine, although it was widely known by the British that that was the opposite of the truth. In part 13 of this series, I quoted Muslim leader Sharif Hussein, saying on 23 March 1918, the resources of the country are still virgin soil and will be developed by the Jewish immigrants. One of the most amazing things until recent times was that the Palestinian used to leave his country, wandering over the high seas in every direction. His native soil could not retain its hold on him. In 1920, Churchill handed over the greater part of the proposed Jewish homeland, about 83%, to King Abdullah. It is modern-day Jordan. For those still demanding a Palestinian homeland for the Muslims, that's it. There's no disagreement, it seems, in the Muslim world that Jordan qualifies as Palestine, although Palestine is a myth. Yasser Arafat, the leader of the most important Muslim terrorist organization pushing for what he called Palestinian rights, had stated that Jordan was Palestine. Other Arab leaders, even King Hussein and Prince Hassan of Jordan, from time to time had stated that Palestine is Jordan and Jordan is Palestine. Moreover, in 1970-71, later called the Black September period, when King Hussein waged war against Yasser Arafat's Arab PLO forces, who had been operating freely in Jordan until then, Yasser Arafat's PLO members were not described as invading terrorists, but the situation was described as a civil war. It was King Hussein said, a final crackdown against those of my people who I accuse of trying to establish a separate Palestinian state under Muslim-Palestinian rule instead of under my own rule. They are criminals and conspirators who use the commando movement to disguise their treasonable plots to destroy the unity of the Jordanian and Palestinian people.
Israel is only the smallest part, 17% of what was called Palestine in the British mandate granted by the League of Nations as their home. From the beginning of the British mandate, Jews had not been allowed to settle in eastern Palestine, more commonly known as Transjordan in those days. In many of the areas of modern Israel, often called Western Palestine, in the later stages of the British mandate, Jews were prohibited from settling or forced to flee for their lives because of Muslim violence. The allegation of Jews forcing Muslims from their lands has never been clearly spelled out. It sounds awful. What is apparent from the frequent bloody uprisings against the Jews by the Muslims during the period of the British Mandate is that had any Jew shown the temerity to force Muslims off their land, they would have quickly been murdered. This allegation of Jews forcibly taking Muslim land is emotionally strong stuff, and it's total and utter rubbish. There's an important difference between areas allowed to be settled by Jews in Western Palestine before Israel came into existence and the entire country. Unraveling this wasn't easy and took a bit of investigative work. In 1972, Kemal Karpet did a study of the 1893 Turkish census. Even at the beginning of this work, one of the significant things that this research confirmed was that there was never any state of Palestine in the Turkish Empire. He explained, Ottoman documents as well as British consular reports indicate clearly that the area to be known as Palestine was divided among several administrative sub-centres. Consequently, any demographic study of Palestine shall have to deal separately with each major town and its environments included in this area to establish the numbers of people inhabiting it. He was able to determine the number of non-Jewish people living in what became the Jewish settled areas of Western Palestine when Jewish immigrants started to arrive and set up their communities. After 1939, Jews were forbidden by the British authorities to buy land for settlement. The study that was done showed that rather than a situation in which a teeming Arab people present from time immemorial were forced off or excluded from their land by Jews, it was almost the exact opposite. The highly successful commercial presence of the Jews attracted Muslim migrants, and the Jews' land, earmarked as their homeland, was often instead occupied by the arrival of these Muslim immigrants from outside Jewish settled areas, but still from within Western Palestine. What this shows is that it was more often the Jews who were excluded from their land by the Muslims and not the other way around. The Muslims moved to the Jewish settled areas from other parts of Western Palestine, and had in fact never lived there until after the Jews had settled those areas and made it very attractive to move there. The figures clearly show this happening. In 1893, there were 92,300 Muslims living in the main areas of Jewish settlement. By 1947, that number had grown to 463,000. The local Muslim population of Western Palestine was either moving with Jews to areas where they were going to start farming, or following the Jews there, especially once they got established. There was no question of Jews forcibly expelling Arab from land. 
that they'd lived on from time immemorial, since the Muslims moved there with or after the Jews. For reasons already discussed, the concept of a mostly non-violent Jewish minority who had for over a thousand years been a people subjected to the most violent abusive treatment by the Muslims as dhimmis, subject people barely tolerated by the Muslims, now forcibly and violently evicting a majority Muslim farming community from their land is so ridiculous that it's not worth discussing as a serious proposition. Another example in more detail is what happened at the Jewish settlement of Rishon Lisyon, founded in 1882. By the year 1889, the 40 Jewish families that were settled there had attracted more than 400 Arab families, most of them Bedouin and Egyptian. They had come to surround the Mosheva, the settlement, in a now thriving village that before the founding of Rishon Sion had been Sarafand, a forsaken ruin. So applying the famous Sherlock Holmes observation, once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. The Muslims of Western Palestine weren't being expelled from their land by the Jews, which was impossible for the reasons already explained. They were following the Jews to where they were establishing a thriving farm, which would give them work and prosperity too. The same thing happened in the 1940s with the oil boom in Kuwait. The population growth of that area was 5%. Riyad Tabara, in his book Population, wrote that half of the growth was made up of people who identified themselves as Palestinians. The fact that they were accepted as being people with some claim to live in the area of Palestine, meaning in today's terms Israel and Jordan, which together with the entire country that should have been the Jewish homeland, except that 83% of it was given to the Muslims in 1922, becoming the state of Transjordan, and that was borne out by the fact that 300,000 of these Palestinians in Kuwait were expelled from Kuwait for supporting Saddam Hussein when he occupied that country before the Gulf War. Where did most of those people go? To Jordan! This was the largest forcible transfer of Muslims who identify as Palestinians in history. They aren't living in refugee camps anywhere. Talk about a homeland for the Muslims who call themselves Palestinians. Its name is Jordan. Human nature being what it is, Muslims in Western Palestine did the smart thing, the obvious thing, and followed the money trail to the prosperous Jewish settlements. The reasons why the Muslims who lived in Western Palestine were flocking to the new prosperous Jewish settlements in the 1920s and onwards are obvious, as I've discussed earlier in this program. It was the same reason why the Muslims who identified themselves as Palestinians were flooding to Kuwait during the oil boom there in the 1940s. And the important lesson there is that Muslims were travelling from their homeland to a foreign country, which clearly happened with Muslims going to the Jewish homeland from other parts of the Muslim world. The opposite situation is equally as obvious. If there's no livelihood to be gained from an area, then people will leave it. That was what had been happening to the godforsaken holy lands for most of the thousand-odd years that the Muslims, one regime after another, and finally the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire had to keep finding people to send to Palestine. 
Once the people that the Ottoman Empire had sent to the Holy Lands had a good look at the place, they did what all of their predecessors had done and left it. For much of its history under Muslim rule, this had been the story of the Holy Lands. In the later 19th century, the Muslim population of Palestine was recorded by Colonel Conda in his 1883 book, Heth and Moab. He made repeated visits to this area and wrote that Palestine was continuously replenished from the tribes of the Arabian desert with colonies of Turkomans, Circassians, Kurds and others planted about, mainly because the Arab race had diminished most sadly. In 1881-1882, after the Turks' war with Russia, Colonel Condor found Palestine a ruined land. In the ten years between his visits, the population had diminished, most sadly, in numbers and wealth. This might explain these statements by British observers and officials, reports that fluctuations cancelled out any possible increase in Western Palestine, leaving a static small number of inhabitants who had not changed for two centuries, meaning as to the total numbers, although people were coming and going, mostly going, all the time. It was a condition that, but for the Jewish development, might have continued to remain the same, maybe for time immemorial. But if the Muslims who had lived in the British Mandate found the Jewish settlements exerted an irresistible pull on them with the promise of a much better life, it would be surprising if Muslims in surrounding Muslim countries weren't also attracted to go there. Like the Palestinians who went to Kuwait, Colonel McKerith found that when he urged the introduction of identity cards for the residents of the British Mandate to stop illegal entries, the pro Arab British government didn't care if Muslims from other countries flooded into the mandate. They only cared if Jews wanted to because they wanted to slow them down, maybe even to stop them. The whole purpose of the British mandate was to flood the country with Jews, get it running as a Jewish state and then leave. Maybe the British didn't want to leave. So let's take a closer look at the Muslims coming in from surrounding countries in the next program. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple, and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. 